From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. And welcome to the Votes and Verdicts podcast hosted by Bloomberg Intelligence, Bloomberg LP's investment research platform. In this podcast series, we talk about the intersection of business, policy, and law. My name is Brandon Barnes, and I'm a senior analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence covering energy litigation, regulation, and policy. Today, I am lucky enough that a longtime contact and friend in the energy infrastructure world is joining us for our second episode of the podcast. Tim Schneider, he's currently with his own group after being a veteran of the cell side for energy for years. Um, Tim and I first crossed paths back when he was with Evercore, when he invited me to speak there. And we kept that relationship going through his move back to city. So I think, I guess it's my turn finally way overdue to return the favor and bring him somewhere. So Tim, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thank you for, uh, thank you for having me. It's been, uh, it's been a long time. So glad we can, uh, can connect here. You've, um, you've had a really interesting career that I think spans some geography and a, a, a number of different disciplines. I was hoping you could share some of that with us and talk about how that's led you to what you're doing right now. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I mean, I, I've always I've always been in energy, kind of my whole my whole career. I actually started out at at Halliburton. Well, at the time it was Kellogg Brown and Root. That was when I was still part of Halliburton in the Middle East, a um, couple couple different countries. Then came back um, came back to the U.S. and I, I kind of knew I always wanted to be in finance. So I actually started. My first Wall Street job was at, at Lehman Brothers, um, kind of doing some stuff on the, on the credit risk side, and then moved over to Deutsche Bank, where I kind of, you know, started as an associate on the um, oil field services team, went to City then, and kind of, this is where I really started kicking, kicking the tires and the midstream stuff, then went over to Evercourt to head up their midstream, midstream platform, and then the um, old city analyst left, and then City, you know, called me and said, "Hey Tim, do you want to come come over and, and head up our energy energy franchise?" So I did that at for the, for the America. So came back to City, and then recently recently left to kind of start my my own firm. And look, um, the business is called the Schneider Capital Group LLC, and it's basically um, you know, we're trying to help our customers navigate complexities along the energy value chain and then also trying to identify some opportunities to unlock and capture value for them. And I, th- I really thought it was the time to do this because I'm, I'm extremely, um, I don't know if bullish is the right word, but I'm, 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 extremely, I'm, I'm extremely excited to be in this space, to be in energy, and I'm extremely excited to kind of, you know, look at the next couple of years and kind of see what's coming down the pipe, no pun intended, right? And especially with this new, um, with the energy revolution and kind of what I think is an all of the above approach, 
um, going forward. So it's extremely exciting, I think. And, you know, we, we work with institutional asset managers, private equity firms, infrastructure funds, commodity trading houses, some sovereign wealth funds, and then obviously, obviously corporate. So I actually do have, Brandon, I do have a, I do have my own Twitter wire on Bloomberg now. So if you if you are subscribed to that, you can you, you can follow my tweets. Uh, it, it took me a while to kind of learn the hashtags and the dollar signs and all that, but I, I got a um I got the uh, I got the introduction. So and look, if if anybody wants to wants to be put on my distribution list, I post everything on the website for now. Um, you can you can ping me or or they can go through you. So happy happy to do that. Yeah. So that distribution list has been. Uh the source of a lot of interesting content for me already. And um, I thought that the most, re I mean, the reason for us getting back in touch was your Houston email. I thought that was a, a very interesting discussion that piqued my sort of policy antenna about where energy companies were thinking and where their heads were at because of some of the policies that have been offered in the past year because of what's coming down this year and, and maybe looking forward. Just interesting to, to read about that and then think about what, what, what the actual issues are that are making companies change their behavior and change their allocations for resources. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I mean, maybe some context here for, for the listeners. So I, I was in Houston now two weeks ago, and it was basically, I mean, the Kinder Morgan Analyst Day was kind of the anchor, and I met with a couple of other, other corporates, and then also had a couple of meetings with, with a few folks in the, um, in the industry. And I, I think before we kind of get into some of this policy stuff, maybe it'd be helpful for the listeners to kind of convey or at least kind of share with, with you my views on what's happening in the, in the industry right now. And I think it's, it's, it's extremely interesting because you've, you've kind of had this, I, I guess, this tug of war, in my opinion, at least, between, uh, between capital allocation, right? I, call, I kind of call it threading the needle, right? And that's threading the needle between returning cash to shareholders, um, whether that is via buybacks, um, dividend increases. I actually think debt reduction is, is, is part of that equation as well. Um, and then also what I call kind of high grading the company for the future, right? And I'm not, look, I'm not saying hydrocarbon, traditional hydrocarbons are going away overnight. That certainly is not going to happen. But at some point, right, I mean, the, the renewable mix for these companies or clean, clean mix, well, however you want to call it, is, is, going to get, is going to get bigger, right? And I think it's, it's been difficult it's I, I don't envy some of these management teams that have to make these decisions of, you know, how, how do we kind of position ourselves for that? So I actually think there's two things I think that happened with that. Um, the, the one thing is I think it, it potentially sets up a kind of a wave of privatizations, right? And I, because I think it's much easier to kind of high grade yourself if you're a private company because you don't really I mean you don't have to answer to shareholders right and I think we, we actually we saw a couple of privatizations happen I think this was back in 1819 those those are all there's a couple of portfolio companies of large private equity firms and I think that that's what that's what's happening right now right um in terms of how they're positioning themselves I don't know what their exit strategy is um we'll see and I think the other thing 
that could potentially come come out of this. And I'm not going to get into this in, in great detail in this podcast. It's it's a that's a whole new discussion for another thing. Is you know it probably sets up a wave of uh, M&A activity in this sector. And that's, you know, that's either interest subsector called, called upstream, upstream, midstream, midstream. Or if you want to be a bit more, um, I'll call it adventurous or think outside of the box, I, I do think there's something to be said here for, for combining companies along the energy value chain, right? So that would be upstream, midstream, midstream, downstream, or, or along those lines. But it ultimately, a lot of this is, is kind of tied back to um, how these companies are going to position themselves for for the next couple of years here, and I think obviously this is uh, that's why you and I are talking. Absolutely, and I think that tension is sort of uh, on either side of the needle. You're going to get squeezed by potentially by either rhetoric or actual legislation and policy out of the government. So it's a, it's an interesting tension. So what um, what do you see the companies doing about it these days? Yeah, sure. Look, I think there is, if you look at, and, and Kinder Morgan actually kind of, I, th- I think did a good job kind of, kind of highlighting this. And I always like to, I like to use baseball analogies because uh, most people, most people understand it, right? And, and specifically talking about innings, right? What inning are we in here for, for different things? So I'd say in terms of, let, let's, let's look at some of the renewable stuff, right? I, I think in terms of, call it RNG or renewable natural gas, I think that industry in the U.S. is is relatively mature at this point. You know, I'll call it um, just in terms of the technology, right? I'll call it. I'll we can we can get into that in a bit here. You know, how that mar- how we kind of see that market shape, shaping up. But you know, I'll I'll, I'll give that middle to late innings. Um, I think the carbon capture and sequestration stuff. Um, there's probably still some some more wood to chop here. But there certainly is, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that have have some pretty ambitious plans. Um, it was actually interesting. Exxon just had their earnings call, and they certainly they certainly talked about that. And then, kind of little little further along, I'll still call it earlier innings is probably um, hydrogen. I'll throw ammonia in that as well. But th- those are kind of um, you know, those, those are kind of, I would say the three, three main buckets, at least, uh, that we're getting a lot of, a lot of questions on. So happy to, happy to kind of start where, where, wherever you want to start. Maybe we'll start with, um, let's see here, low carbon fuel standards, maybe. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> jump right in. Yeah. And look, um, Obviously, and that was a focus when when we we're in Houston. Obviously, right now, you know, let's talk about renewable diesel. Right, all renewable diesel right now is kind of gravitating towards California, right? And the reason it wants to get there is because I mean, you certainly have if you're looking at you call it low carbon fuel standards, right? A pretty well developed three layer tax credit, so everybody kind of gets the two layers from the federal perspective. And then obviously in California, what makes that so lucrative is the credit that you're getting in California. And then just kind of putting putting some numbers around that. I think last time I checked in California, the subsidy kind of equates to about $4 per gallon. Why is that happening in California? Obviously, look, the state's been relatively, um, I guess I'll call it progressive. And I, I think off the top of my head here, I, I think their goal is to eliminate 
um, for California, the state's greenhouse gas emissions, I want to say by 2045, I think that's what they've kind of, um, I think that's what they've put out there. And look, I, I think the other interesting thing here is that we, we came away with in Houston is what other states are potentially going to copy or at least adopt some sort of a footprint that we're seeing in California, right? Now, I think that's interesting from a midstreamer's perspective because if you already have assets, call it terminal assets or whatnot in one of those states, right? Now, I'll use, um, I'll use Oregon, Oregon because that's probably the furthest along here. Um, there's, there's some stuff going on in Washington state as well, but I'm, 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 I actually don't know specifically where they are in that process, but I think back, back to, back to the point I was making, I think it's interesting for companies that have assets in, in those states potentially, because obviously, look, it's a tremendous amount of operating leverage, right? You already have the existing asset footprint and, um, it, it just would kind of accrete to the bottom line. In, in my opinion, at least. But look, I, I think at this point, it's probably, I don't think people are really discounting it. So um, actually curious, have you guys spent a lot of time kind of kind of looking at that, what's going to happen with, with some of these different states? So not on a state-by-state policy basis, but the way we've been looking at it most recently is we've been focused on, you know, what, how did these credits stack up to force new projects being on offer, right? Because it was always, more recently, the question was, is where does, if we're building pipes, what are they going to transmit? Because it's so hard to build natural gas pipes. It's very difficult to build crude pipes, just from a regulatory standpoint. And so we've watched some of the bigger new projects coming out of the Midwest are actually CO2 pipes, right? And so that's where it's an interesting, you know, are these state level programs combined with the federal programs, are they actually forcing changes in, in the dynamic? And, and that's what we're focused on right now. Yeah. And then you actually, you bring up a really interesting point that kind of gets back to what are the actual returns on some of these projects, right? So Kinder Morgan, actually, I thought, and I keep coming back to them because that was kind of the impetus of this discussion because it's who I went to see down in Houston you know, I mean, they have a, um, what's the backlog? I think just over 3 billion and the implied, the implied, so that, that's not all going to be renewables, right? But it's, you know, I think they kind of bucketed as 80% towards um, carbon reduction or whatnot, but there certainly is some, some capex in there for renewable natural gas and so forth. But look, I mean, they're saying they, they can bring that backlog online at kind of, you call it three and a half, three and a half times. So I think that that obviously is, you know, look, look at traditional midstream returns, typically call it, you know, six, uh, I'll use a range of six to eight times um, on EBITDA. And I think what's been interesting, um, I don't know if you saw the, the article that just came out on BP, because BP really um, had been, had been in the penalty box a little bit, I'd say, because investor, because obviously they've made this huge push into renewables, right? And I, I think investors are were kind of questioning, is that really, you know, are the returns going to be there? And is there really, 
basically, could you be using your capital for for something else? And the article I'm I'm referring to is basically the um, I think it was the CEO, and I I only read the um, you know glanced through it briefly, you know, kind of maybe shifting away a little bit from the uh, from this ESG driven, I guess I'll call it investment agenda, and, and more kind of focusing on their uh, bread and butter hydrocarbon business. So I thought that, I thought that was interesting, just in terms because you brought up the uh, the whole topic of of returns on some of these projects. Yeah, it is certainly. I yeah, I saw that hit hit the wire too yesterday, and I think um, you know it's just interesting to watch it flex, right? Because it's someone like Exxon getting knocked over the years for not doing enough. And now they seem to be getting, you know, uh, positive feedback on having a more diversified outlook on what they're, what they're spending money on and, and a longer term vision on the transition. That, I mean, I, we, we put out a, um, we kind of put out a takeaway or a quick take after the Exxon call. And I think, look, I mean, they've done, they've done a decent job in terms of kind of returning cash, excuse me, returning cash to shareholders, um, investing in their traditional hydrocarbon business, but then also really focusing on, uh, I forget what they, I think it's called the carbon solutions group or something like that. Then really kind of um, earmarking funds for that. Right. So you kind of have, you have these different buckets and you kind of have to address all of them. The other thing I'd, I'd say from a, from a from an energy infrastructure perspective that I think is gaining gaining some momentum here is if you call, call it 2020, 2021, that was a period of time where these companies really had to get, obviously the, the debts of COVID here, had to get their balance sheets in order. You know, a lot of them, a lot of them cut their cut their dividends. And investor, all the investors wanted to see is really, you know, just give me the money coming out of COVID, right? Buyback stock, increase the dividend. I think now um, if we're kind of solving towards the lowest common denominator here, right? And this is cash flow allocation. I, I think there's something to be said here for a company that had that has all that plus an interesting kind of growth angle, right? And I, I think this is again where um, you know, so some of these, some of these legislative things, um, or so, so some of the, you know, we call it renewable natural gas, carbon sequestration, low carbon fuel standards. I, I think if you have, if you have an angle on that, I think that is something that certainly can be a differentiating factor when you're kind of telling your story. So, and picking up on that thread, because I'm curious your take on from what you're hearing. I understand that most most of the bigger guys are probably sitting there saying, well, let's do a little of each. But where do you see out of some of the things you mentioned, the sort of the policy driving the biggest push right now? Is it carbon capture? Is it hydrogen, ammonia? Is it RNG? Which one gets the most attention? Um, look, I, th- I think the one that gets a, I mean, obviously hydrogen and ammonia, um, it kind of depends on, I mean, it also depends on who you talk to, right? I, I think that one certainly um, is kind of getting, in my opinion, I, even, I mean, just go on social media, right? Go on LinkedIn, whatever. And if you're willing to look kind of beyond your traditional energy audience, I, I think those 
hydrogen's always in the headlines, right? So I, I think just from a from an awareness perspective, I, I would kind of put those those front and center. I, I'd say from a you know from an investment opportunity um, right now, immediate from a you know called an energy infrastructure company, that market probably. Um, at least if I kind of look at the companies I'm looking at is probably a little bit further out. Right. I mean, I mean, there, there's some, I think that a lot of the companies are still trying to figure out what, what actually, what, what actually happens to our pipeline when we move hydrogen molecules through the, through the pipeline. Right. Because it's, um, it's obviously a tiny, it's a tiny molecule and, you know, there's some potential integrity issues with that. But certainly, um, I'd say in the general media, again, that hydrogen ammonia gets the most attention. I think in terms of near-term opportunity, I'd probably stack up renewable natural gas um, is probably the one where there's the most kind of near-term opportunity. I'd probably throw in, you know, call it um, renewable diesel in California. I'd throw it in there as well. Then obviously, in, ter in terms of economic impact, um, the other thing, I mean, the, the one that's that's really interesting here is obviously um, carbon capture and sequestration, right? If you kind of look at the tax credits, um, or the incremental, I guess the incremental benefit coming out of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, I, I think that certainly um, has increased economics for for a lot of projects here. And I, I think there certainly is companies pivoting towards that. Exxon made an interesting comment on that on the car whole carbon capture thing in their in their earnings call here last week. Actually this week, I'm sorry. I'm getting my getting my days confused. Um, and that was it's not, you know, carbon capture is not a game for startups, right? It's going to require a ton of capital that you have to be willing to, to put behind and obviously there is um, you know there still is some regular some regulatory delays right because you need to in order to get the carbon in the ground you obviously need to have a class six well permit and that right now is going through the EPA it's so I obviously I've never filed one but the feedback the feedback from folks <laughs> you haven't filed a, a classic no, no, application yeah, not, not, not yet it's a <laughs> it's a it's a very onerous project and it takes forever and and so um, there's a couple states that have filed for uh, what's it called primacy right so primacy yeah, yeah primacy and I'm actually curious as to what your take is on this so so I, I think it's Texas is one of them. Louisiana is the other one. There may be a couple of others. I don't know, but I think Louisiana is a little bit further along than uh, than Texas. But I, I I actually don't know what that would do to the timeline in terms of getting one of these wells wells approved. Uh, I'm curious if you guys have looked at that. Yeah, um, you're 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 speaking my language when you're talking primacy. Uh, I, I know, right? I was like, what what is that? So. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so it's interesting, right? Because this is, you know, if you think about carbon capture as being such a big push as an opportunity for the government to meet industry in a place where they maybe already are or could go, they are dragging their feet. So EPA is the one who gets to hand out, like, essentially it's delegating authority to a state to run a program. And all the underground wells that you see, like fracking, you know, a class two, uh, 
solid waste disposal, which we do a lot of. Uh, I think that's class one. All these different classes of wells, they are administered by the states because at one point they applied to EPA. EPA said, you have the expertise here, we agree, so you can do the, the permitting. So right now, North Dakota and Wyoming are approved. They're the only two states that are approved for, for carbon sequestration wells permitting programs. Louisiana's been pending for like over 600 days. And um, Texas, West Virginia, and Arizona are all in the so-called pre-application stage, which is just, you know, government regulatory speak for first stage of application. Um, but, you know, it took North Dakota 1,800 days to get approved. So these are not moving quickly. And that, I think, as a separate conversation outside of the scope of this podcast topic, I think discussing that is a looming problem for all of these projects that are now being, you know, people are rushing to throw money at them, but they don't necessarily have these wells on a, on a large-scale basis that can be permitted yet. Got it. Yeah, and look, I, I think there certainly is, you know, there's a big opportunity set around it. And just, if, if I mean, if you're looking at CO2 emissions, right, I mean, let, let's, let, let's look at some of these sources, I, I think, the coal industry, obviously, and this is in the U.S., right? Coal industry, I mean, that is what, call it 48 billion cubic feet a day or so. Natural gas power, about 30 billion cubic feet a day or so. Then it kind of drops off, you know, refineries, nine, cement production, four, and then there's, there's a bunch of others. But obviously, there is there's a big opportunity set. And I'd say, you know, it's just in terms of CO2 infrastructure, um, I think obviously if you do have existing pipes, I think Kinder Morgan actually, I, I want to say it's the largest CO2 pipe, but don't, don't quote me on that. I think we just quoted you on that. I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess that's the, uh, that's the, um, perils of the podcast, right? I, I, sorry. I, I, that's sorry. The, I think that is the, um, I think that's the Cortez pipeline. I want to say, I think that's 1.5 billion cubic feet a day. And I think they're flowing just about a billion cubic feet a day of carbon um, out of, I think it comes out of Colorado and it goes down into the Permian. They, they use it obviously for their, um, for their CO2 floods right now in the, um, for their oil business. It's an interesting, I, I think it's all fascinating, right? Because the, the way you think about like government policy, like, there were already some projects kind of getting off the ground here and there when the Q credits or the, the tax credits supporting uh, carbon sequestration were were at the lower end, which I think was still like $45 a ton or something. Yeah, and I think um, it went to what, 80? I think it's, yeah, I think it's even higher. It's over 100, I, I'm, I'm almost positive. Um, I think, and that's, that's the power of throwing money at something, right, is because the Inflation Reduction Act basically, from my perspective in D.C., seemed to surge projects. And not and so suddenly you've got a bunch of LNG export terminals that are trying to get off the ground, get approval, hit, get over that final hump with FERC, um, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. And the ones that were in a little bit of trouble started adding carbon capture as a mitigation measure because, you know, it, it helped – kind of reset the balance for them on the analysis of the cost benefits 
and looking at like environmental justice for surrounding communities, whether they were disproportionately impacting various communities that are disadvantaged. In, and typically for LNG, that means not just really land use, but more like potential emissions. And so having carbon capture there was a huge add-on, but not just that, it's a potential revenue generator now, which is kind of a wild thing to think about. Yeah, oh, yeah, I really agree with you. And actually, you you brought up uh, you brought up an interesting point here. And just in, and I actually have a question for you on this because you're the you're the policy expert expert, not me. But um, so obviously, there. Let's assume this the, the the tax credit is sticky, right? So as a as you're kind of looking as an energy infrastructure operator, you're kind of looking at your call it your por portfolio of you know where you can because you only have a finite amount of money, right? And I, I think. Obviously, you know, the, the whole um, renewable natural gas, low carbon fuel standards, all that stuff. I mean, it's great, right? I mean, just I'll give you an example here. Let, let's look at renewable natural gas kind of demand markets, right? Let's look at a transport transportation market, right? So you're selling, let's call it gas as actually don't do not have my Bloomberg up, which is funny on the, on the Bloomberg podcast, right? Let, let, let's say natural gas right now is you call it three, three bucks. Um, but you're you're adding obviously as you're selling that as you're selling that you're getting the the REN credit right and that is um, the most relevant one here is probably the D three REN and again not, don't have my Bloomberg up you can look this up on Bloomberg they they do have the REN pricing on there um, I think last time I checked it was close to call it twenty seven dollars right so that turns a, a three dollar molecule into a thirty dollar molecule and that's interesting however. I mean, RIN prices obviously are um, can be extremely volatile, right? So as you're kind of allocating, as as you're, you know, let's let's say an energy infrastructure company, you don't really want that, um, or you don't you don't love that variability of of cash flow, right? That volatile. I mean, because your whole investment thesis had always been, we have we have steady steady cash flows. Now look, I mean, the opportunity set obviously is. Um, uh, I mean, the returns you're getting on that is, is, is pretty impressive. So you'll, you'll take the volatility, but just in terms of more visibility, you probably have more visibility on cash flow on something on the uh, carbon capture side. And this is, this is where, where the, question, the question I had for you, do you think there's ever any risk to those carbon credits, um, those tax credits being, being repealed or lower if there were a change in the administration? Or do you think once it's in there, it's sticky? I mean, the easy answer is, generally speaking, any quote-unquote entitlement is stuck, right? Anything you give to somebody and they feel entitled to, it's, it stays. I think, I think you can support that answer with a little more analysis by saying that both sides can like this, right? Both sides of the aisle, because you're supporting infrastructure development and build-outs. You're giving energy projects another opportunity to do either generate more revenue or go forward through the regulatory process with a little more certainty. And then at the same time, you're trying to gradually push, it's technology forcing, right? So you're, you're forcing towards a greener fuel set or you're forcing towards better limitation of emissions in some way. And so I think both sides can get behind it. It's just the only people who might not like this over time are the ones who are looking at it and saying you're paying a pipeline, you know, $85 a ton for 12 years guaranteed without taking into account what they're making on the product that they're shipping. Yep. 
so that feels like a lot of money. I mean, these are clearly these are very capital intensive projects. So it's going to be a, there's a high cost there. So you have to offset that. And, and we probably wouldn't have had, you know, these Midwest pipelines popping up being proposed, but for these credits out there, I mean, they just don't don't make sense in the structure that they're built out right now. So um, so you definitely need that that level of funding. But um, I think. You know, I do think it's pretty low risk that these disappear over time. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, going back to your earlier question, kind of where, where do you think the, the biggest opportunity sets are? So I, I'm, I'm actually going to, you know, I, I do think it's it's going to be carbon capture and sequestration and then also, um, you know, a little, little further along hydrogen and ammonia. And then the reason I'm saying that, because I, I just pulled this up, I actually had this prepared before. If you look at the renewable natural gas market, I mean, look, it's it's a... It's a good business, but let's call let's call it you know dry gas production in the U.S. is not is you know I like round numbers. Call it 100 billion cubic feet a day. So renewable natural gas production is um, you know it's a low single digit percentage of that. So it's not huge. There's going to be a lot of growth, but it's off a low base. And you know will it get uh, you know call it five ten Bs over the next decade or so? Maybe who knows? And I think there is. You know, it's a nice supply source for someone who has access to that because unlike shale, you have, you know, there's a lot of visibility just in there. I mean, you don't have to keep, I mean, the garbage keeps coming in, right? So, and it, it keep, does. It, it, it keep, well, it's, it's funny, right? It's actually not, not every landfill is a good landfill. You, you ideally want one that's in a high population area because there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of organic matter that gets thrown out, obviously, you know, food scrapes and this and that. You, you don't want a landfill that has, you know, rocks and, and call it whatever industrial stuff in there. And just on that, I think there's about 2,500 landfills. I'll throw some numbers at you in the U.S. And just for a scope, I, I think 13, 13% of those, um, of that landfill gas right now, is kind of converted into renewable natural gas. And I think over half of these landfills um, or just under half don't even have the infrastructure. So look, there certainly is capital and it's not just landfills, right? I mean, there's dairy digesters and whatnot. There certainly are CapEx dollars that can be spent on that. But ultimately I think the big, um, the big dollars are really going to be gravitating towards carbon capture and sequestration. And then again, uh, hydrogen and ammonia got to say, Tim, I'm impressed with your landfill preparation for this podcast. I appreciate it. Yeah. So, so in, in a prior life, I used to cover, <laughs> I, I used, I used to cover a, um, I used to cover Arkea, um, ticker LFG, or that was the old ticker. Um, we had some fun with that one, but, uh, yeah, look, and then they obviously, they recently got acquired by, um, by BP. So that, that company's no longer, a standalone, but look there, there, and then obviously look, Kinder Morgan made some acquisitions on the renewable natural gas space in the renewable natural gas gas space as well. But um, it'll be interesting to kind of see what happens um, with some of these private companies going forward. So even though they got acquired, you'll always have landfills. That was right. Um, well, that, I mean, I think that that's a really good sort of, look at some of the opportunities that these policies are presenting. Um, and I'm glad that your email 
newsletter from Houston triggered that for this conversation because it's it's it helps me think about it in a different way as well. I'm wondering what your thoughts are in terms of like policy risks, uh, specifically for midstream and, and energy infrastructure generally. Where do you think, at least from what you're hearing or just you personally, what do you think are some of the bigger policy risks for the near term? Sure. I, I mean, look, I, I'd say permitting, but I mean, it can, can it really get much worse? So, I mean, uh, we would say maybe. <laughs> well, but look, I, I think the interesting thing, the interesting thing about that, though, is it actually kind of, in a, in a very funny manner, is somewhat valuable for these companies because there's no, you're not going to have competition, right? Barring some, obviously, Permian pipelines, that stuff is, you know, it's intrastate, it's not interstate, but if you have a big kind of trunk line natural gas pipeline network, I mean, no one's going to come in there and build a pipeline next to you because, you know, they'll, they'll I mean, it's, it's never going to get approved, right? So, um, so it's basically, I mean, the replacement value of steel underground I mean, it's actually a really interesting topic because because those assets can't be replicated. But let's just assume permitting is what it is. I mean, maybe it gets worse. It definitely doesn't get better. I mean, just from a from a risk to cash flows. I mean, I'd say we're just just across the entire energy kind of value value chain. I think any kind of sort of export ban um, obviously wouldn't be uh, obviously obviously wouldn't be wouldn't be great. And I, I, I don't see that. I don't see that happening. I mean, it does, does pop up every now and then, right. And in, in news media, I'd say, you know, that there, there, there were some talking points last year. I remember writing about this at my former employer around, you know, the tax structure, tax treatment for, for master limited partnerships specifically, but I haven't, um, I haven't followed it super closely since 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 I left, but um, I guess any sort of any sort of kind of windfall tax, which I, I, I look, I, I mean, we I think I I think that just went through in Europe, right? And it, it's kind of it, it's actually it's funny because it, it really is achieving the exact opposite of what you want, right? I mean, you you're, you you want more production because you want people to have reliable supply you want people to, you know be able to heat their homes and and not have to live paycheck to paycheck to do that so i, I don't think that's that's going to happen um in the u.s but obviously europe europe's, europe's a little different but i'd say um i can probably noodle over a couple more about gun to my head i, I think that's kind of what 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 popped up yeah, I think I think that those are all probably pretty relevant to discuss because in one shape or other over the last year they've been discussed, right? Trial balloons get floated in DC all the time just to kind of see what initial polling looks like as a just a measure of, you know, either is this something we want to pursue or can we use this as a, as a chip to talk about and go in a, you know, a more moderate direction so we look like we're trying to come to the table. That's a cynical view of DC, which is probably the right one. Um, but I don't, yeah, we agree. I don't think there's an export ban that gets put on the table. The geopolitics, particularly with how things are right now in, in Russia, Ukraine, I don't think the US can do anything to, to minimize exporting any of their commodities. Um, it just, 
too many allies relying on it right now, and pricing would go crazy. Obviously, you know that as well as anybody. Um, so I don't I don't see that happening other than just sort of yelling. There's there's a lot of yelling in DC, and I think that that might be one of them, but that never comes to fruition. Permitting is more interesting because we've had some proposals, right? We've had some things thrown out there. Um, Senator Manchin, it's really what he wants to get done, but you know that's not been the way that the GOP leadership wants to go because it wasn't done in a bipartisan manner. Now, there's some news out, I think even just today, on Bloomberg about rumors around permitting reform and, and is it back? Does it come back? You know, we think the only way it gets done is if the GOP leads and Manchin gets behind it. The problem, really, I think for Midstream and LNG, which is really, I think, probably the two key pieces of infrastructure types that we think about when we think about permitting issues, although I'm sure others would feel the same way in the in the chemical space. But you know, the problem is for them is that the reforms that are being proposed are really just in the margins. They don't get at the issue, which is that the underlying statute's problematic. It's the environmental reviews have expanded. They've doubled the time over over the period of like four years. And so um, it's it's an interesting time, I think, for energy permitting, particularly midstream, because that permitting reform won't do much. But on the other hand, FERC is right now is at 2-2 in a split. They're supposed to be five commissioners generally, and we're at 2-2 because uh, one has uh, his term is up, and there hasn't been somebody re reappointed yet. And the current uh, chairman, Commissioner Phillips, is pretty moderate and seems to our, – our opinion is that this will move some projects along faster in this period than we've seen in the last four years. And so those projects that are in sort of the intermittent stage where they're waiting on approval but have already applied, like I think uh, Williams, like their regional energy access project, that's a big deal for Transco. That one just got its certificate in January. I think we're going to see that kind of movement at least in the next six months just because of the way FERC is, is set up. And then once, potentially, once we get past six months, we'll see a full complement. And then FERC's, you know, dynamic shift again. Who knows? But um, it's sort of a, it's the first time we've seen some optimism in the space on the regulatory side. But I think overall, uh, the package of obstacles that these projects face is still pretty robust. Yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. It just made me think. I think the first time you and I, um, when I when I hosted a dinner, this is back at when I was at ISI or at Evercore now, I should say. Um, I think it was on MVP. Oh yeah, that that was what that was what that, that was 20, <laughs> 20, 2016 or so. And uh, I don't know how many subsequent calls we had and dinners on on MVP, but I, I feel like that is uh, that is certainly case in point for 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 what happens to one of those pipelines for one of those projects. And you know that that I mean, you know, MVP is looking at whatever permitting reforms out there, just hoping that they get named again, because they've been the only one who's potentially been talked about as a carve out. They would love that because they're in they're in a just a whiplash between the agencies and the courts right now that keeps going. But that is another podcast idea. We're just coming up with pearls here, Tim. Yeah, I, I know, right? Well, I, look, um, I the the other thing. Um, that I forgot to mention uh, that that's interesting. And I, I have, 
I will caveat, I, ha I need to do a little bit more work on this um, and kind of see what the actual economic impact could be for, for these companies, right? Or kind of the, whoever is, is touching us is, is this whole idea of an E-RIN, right? And that's obviously that came out of the EPA. They just kind of issued their um, renewable fuel, renewable volume obligations for the next three years. And that, what an E-RIN is, it's basically you're selling um, renewable natural gas, RNG, yeah, basically in the power market, right? And that, that is then going to be used to charge electric cars. So it's kind of, you know, kind of fits that whole, call it renewable, renewable energy, um, value chain. I think, and you probably know this better than me, I don't think the regulations are finalized yet. I think they should be um, mid-year, but that could be, I mean, that could be another, I guess I'll call it shot of a shot of adrenaline for the renewable natural gas market, for lack of a better term. Yeah, which is, an, it's an interesting time for EPA in the RIN market, right? Because they have to revisit the program, which sort of statutory expired in 22. Um, just to put a fine point on that, yeah, the, that rule is supposed to be finalized by June 14th of this year. Uh, comment period ends February 10th. So depending on the volume of comments, that, that rule could take a little bit longer, but, you know, mid-year, mid start looking for it. Um, that's a good, that's a good uh, spot, I think, Tim, to, uh, to cover us for the substantive portion. We're, you know, we have a long history of this now our second episode of um, finishing with an off-topic question here. Uh, I think the last one, my colleagues asked uh, Mick Mulvaney what album, three albums he would use on a need to have with him on a desert island. I would ask you something slightly different, which is if you were stuck on a desert island, heaven forbid, um, would you want a movie with you, one single movie, or would you want an album? Ooh, that is a that is a good question. Um, is, is it is it a good question? Well, I I mean I I would ha I would have to say it's it's got to be a movie. Okay, it's got to be a movie, and I, I I bet your follow up is is going to be what movie? Well, we can't leave our listeners hanging. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I like. Um, I like eighties movies. I, I would probably I would have to bring it's gotta be it's gotta be something with Chevy Chase in it. I <laughs> I, I, it, I got you know I it's I got I'm gonna bring Caddyshack. I love it. That's a great answer. Actually you know either either Caddyshack or Fletch. One of those two. Also a good answer. I I think Caddyshack has a better soundtrack. Yeah, that's maybe right. uh there's some journey in there. There's yeah, so I, I'm I'm getting two for one. You get logins, um, which we know is all about the danger zone. That's right. All right. Well, we'll close it out there. That's our second episode of Votes and Verdicts. Uh, I want to thank our guest, Tim Schneider, for taking the time to join us. It was interesting. It was thought-provoking. We had some chuckles. I wouldn't call them laughs. Um, but certainly, we got into it on energy business, litigation, regulation, policy, which is my favorite place to be. So please join us next time. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, 
The promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.